Well, to date, the U.S. Marshal Service has given a new identity to over 19,000 different people. The program is entitled the Witness Protection Program, and it relocates and protects its people. You should know that about 95% of them are criminals themselves. But upon entrance, the people are given a new identity. It's a complete break with their old self. They're given a new social security number and a new birth certificate. They're given a, a new name, a new job, a new home. And if you are a Christian here this morning, you should know that you too have been given a new identity. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So for you and I as former lawbreakers, we, have now we now live as someone who has been forgiven by God and freed. We're favored by God. And though while we live in this world, we are different, exiles, we're strangers, and though we will face hardships simply because we are Christians, God has told us truths, facts about our new identity. We are who God says we are. And that's so important because we live in a world that's trying to tell us who we ought to be. We may have it within our own minds of who we want to be. But at the end, Ultimately, at the beginning, it needs to reside in who God says we are. That is our identity. That equips us to live this new life. Well, Peter is writing in 1 Peter chapter 1 to churches facing hard times. The gospel has spread. Jesus has ascended. He sent his disciples out. The gospel's taking root. Seed is in the ground. It's growing. It's sprouting. It's spreading. But all of it's happening under the clouds of persecution. And churches wonder, how can we live as exiles, as strangers to this world? Well, we pick up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 this morning. And we learn three realities of our new identity in Christ. You may recall that we began a new preaching series last Sunday in 1 Peter. And we began by asking, who are we? Who are we as believers or as Christians? In those first two verses, we learn that we are chosen exiles, but we're set apart by God, and we're set apart to obey Jesus Christ. We've received a new birth. We will learn that this morning, that we're miraculous, miraculously reborn. We'll see this morning that we have an imperishable inheritance, that we are wealthy heirs of God. And we'll see also that we have a divine protection. We are protected by God. Hear then the word of God, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable 
and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is excited. Uh, he, he is so excited in this passage to the point of losing points in English class. In the original Greek, he begins in verse 1 and writes one continuous sentence, a run-on sentence, through verse 12. That's one long run-on sentence. But can you blame him? Can you blame him for being excited? I'm happy he is. Because there's this overflow within him that just keeps writing. And we can keep reading and keep learning about this new identity. We'll begin where Peter began. You are miraculously reborn. This is verse 3. Our three points this morning follow the the verse numbers, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Our first point this morning, verse 3, you are miraculously reborn. You are one new creation. You see in verse 3 that Peter begins with a praise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This passage is all about what God has done. Praise be to God, says Peter. Notice the titles that he's assigning to to God and to Jesus in a moment. God is the Father of Jesus. I read somewhere that that with one exception throughout all the Gospels, Jesus refers to God always as Father. This is how now you and I are to regard God. We are children of a Father. We are children of the living God. You see, secondly, he assigns Jesus the title of Lord. Lord. God's Son, Jesus, is Lord. And this strikes, in a way, at the core that the audience of Peter, at the core of the problem that Peter's audience had. For them, the Roman emperor was to be Lord, not Jesus. And we know that they're suffering for it, that Peter writes to believers suffering for the name of Jesus. They're enduring a persecution There's a price to pay for for naming Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. So with that said, in in their hurt and in their pain, is, is Peter being insensitive here? Christians are suffering and he wants to praise God? What newfound psychology is this? What about the pain of persecution? And furthermore... He turns to theology as the solution. Discussions in our passage about God and mercy and salvation. You and I know that Peter knows what he's doing. You see, theology is not something just for seminaries or for textbooks. It has real impacts on how we live our lives. What we believe about God impacts how we live our lives. And we're going to see in chapter 1 that this theology that Peter presents, these truths about God, it's, it's the very, uh, it undergirds the very encouragement that these persecuted exiles endure. In chapter 1, it's like a theology hydrant. Someone knocked the cap off of it and it's just spraying out at these new believers. That's the basis of our new, our new identity. And we see firstly here that You were born again. Born again. You are miraculously reborn. 
so significant is the change to your identity. It's almost as though you, you have just a, a new birth. You are a, a whole new person. The old self dies. It, it discontinues. Born again is another word for salvation. To be born again is to be saved from the penalty of our sin. And, and again, we're, we're speaking in spiritual terms here, not literal terms. He's speaking about the condition of our souls. You and I have a spiritual dimension to who we are. And the Bible says that we were born, physically born into this world, spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead, we needed God to give us life. So Peter blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he does just that. The text says he causes us to be reborn. Peter spent a good deal of time with Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples. We might call him the leader amongst those disciples. And I wonder if Jesus told him the story about Nicodemus. In our scripture reading last week, we were reading from the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. We Walt read from there this morning. He picked up where Eric stopped. And in that chapter, a leader of the Jews came to see Jesus by night, Nicodemus. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, when we pass out of this life, if we are to pass into heaven, we must be born again. This is an act of God. New birth. Salvation is from God, it's not from me. Verse 3, he caused us to be born again. No one births themselves. This is from God. No one selects parents. No one schedules the birth date. No one chooses the doctor by which his or her arrival will come about. No one reserves a room for the birth. And contrary to latest opinion, no one chooses his or her sex either. It's male or female. God chooses that too. You see, no one births themselves. This is entirely from God. You'll you'll never meet a self-made Christian. Someone asked you this morning, are you born again? Have you received Jesus Christ? as your Lord. Jesus told Nicodemus how this is possible. Later in John chapter 3, he lays it out. He says, Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, new birth begins with God. And God is looking down upon this world and seeing it broken and fallen. We know that. We feel that. It's a world filled with sin and with with sinners. But out of love, God sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead. And all who believe upon him, says Jesus, all who believe upon him are saved from the penalty of sin. You do not die spiritually. Instead, you receive eternal life. And in fact, if you're here this morning and 
you believe this for the first time, you can pray to God just from where you are. Lord, I, I sin. And I believe that you sent Jesus to pay the price for my sin. Forgive me. And the promise is new life. God answers that prayer of belief. You will be born again. So how does this new birth come about? How does it occur? Well, the text continues. We're, we're born by God's mercy. We discussed this last week. We know that this new birth does not happen by my, the, the family that I'm in. It's not by family lineage. It's not according to my, my personal wealth or my career success. It's not by works. God does not rebirth those who merit it. We say that salvation is not by works, it's by faith. And no one, mark that, no one earns salvation. The text says your new birth happened according to his great mercy, because God is a God of astounding mercy. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, The Bible records the Lord passing before Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You hear in that verse, mercy and grace, they're, they're walking side by side. We often use those words almost interchangeably. But God's mercy withholds what is deserved, and God's grace gives what is not. Again, God's mercy withholds what is deserved, and God's grace gives what is not. In fact, some of your Bibles may use the word compassion instead of mercy. That helps us to see it from a better angle. Those receiving mercy are in distress of some sort. There is a need, there's a helplessness, and that is so true of our spiritual condition. So in Jesus Christ, we get mercy. And this helps us to answer the why question. Why does God save some? Well, he does it by his mercy. Romans chapter 9, verse 15, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. A better question might be, why does God save anyone? Why does he not allow us all to simply get what we have earned and deserved in our rebellion? Because he's a God of mercy, a God of compassion. And as he redeems, he's birthing a new, a whole new family of children. And he's then placing them together in local assemblies called churches. We read some of this last week in verse 1. Remember, Peter's writing to a group of exiles, not to individuals. In verse 3, we see that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus. In verse 3, God caused us, not me alone, but us to be born again. In verse 4, the inheritance is reserved for you. It's plural, literally you all, or y'all as they say in the South. There's this family or familial aspect to our salvation. As you look to the left and to the right in the room this morning, God is saving a group of people. He's redeeming us. We might say, in the context, that we are a roving band of exiles, but we are a band, we're a family. Reborn by a father of mercy. 
If you're following along in this sentence, Peter says that we are now born to a living hope. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That could almost be translated as into a living hope. Again, it's this idea of a complete reworking. We have been removed from over here and placed over here. We've been repositioned. And Peter writes about hope here because he understood hope. There was a time where he went without hope. I mean, just imagine for a moment Peter at the moment when Jesus died. Peter was following Jesus. Peter was a close disciple of Jesus. He left the fishing business to follow Jesus. He's walking with Jesus, an enemy of the state. He has set himself at odds with the powerful Jew- Jewish ruling authority. And he's given up everything only to see Jesus die. He understood hopelessness. But we know Jesus didn't stay dead. That he arose from the dead and in an instant his hope returned. And what Peter says this morning is that you are born into this living hope It's not a dead hope. It's not an empty hope or or a vain hope or a futile hope. The world's going to offer all of these, but Jesus offers something very different. It's a living hope. It's a, a certainty, a reality. It is a sanity in a world insane. It's the outside of Christ. As the end of life approaches, hope plummets. But in Christ... As the end of life approaches, hope rises. It grows, it increases. You see, as certain as the resurrection is, Peter says, so too is our hope. That just as Jesus rose from the dead, so too is our hope in him. It is that real. It is that true. It is that sure. So, who are we? Who am I this morning? You are reborn to a living hope, says Peter. And when our identity changed, what we hope in, that changed as well. And here's what Peter's audience experienced, something you and I will also, is that suffering is going to come along and it's going to test our hopes. Suffering has a way of teasing out what we hope in. You know, it's one thing to declare, I hope in Christ but it's quite another to have a trial come along and test that. You see, Peter's churches, they're suffering for the name of Jesus. And he reminds them that whatever they're hoping in, a rebirth has given them a new identity. And it's an identity that he calls a sure hope. It's not even an invitation in this passage. It's an expectation that we would have a living hope in this Jesus. It's a key to enduring trial for these suffering believers. Well, secondly, in verse 4, you are a wealthy heir. Not only are you miraculously reborn, but you are also a wealthy heir. You may look at someone in this life who is born into wealth, someone who will have to do very little to inherit that wealth, They will never go without a lack of resources. In fact, throughout their entire lives, they can have an abundance. Well, I want you to know this morning that you are a wealthy heir. 
The Bible says you are to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This phrase, again, it connects to the reality of your new birth. We just saw you were born again to a living hope. Now you're born again to an inheritance. And again, it's best to read that as to an inheritance. My version says obtain, to obtain an inheritance. But again, it's like we just saw in verse 3, it could be into. You're born into an inheritance, this complete removal from one place and movement over to another place. It's comprehensive. It's, it's wholesale. You're, you're now a child of a benevolent and generous God. This idea of inheritance goes all the way back to the Old Testament. There, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, they were to receive an inheritance. For them, it would be the promised land. After all, every nation needs a land, and Israel's coming up out of Egypt as slaves of Egypt, freed now, and they need a place to go. If they utilize their land properly, it's going to yield great economic gains for them. We also know that wars are fought over these coveted possessions of land. But early in the Bible, God promised a man named Abraham land. It's modern-day Israel, roughly speaking, was called the land of Canaan. It would then be the task of Moses, who's leading Israel out of Egyptian bondage, to come and settle the land. Numbers chapter 26, verse 52, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these families, the land shall be divided for an inheritance, according to the number of names. Each shall be given their inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. So you hear that the land is the inheritance. But Israel had a problem. People liked to come into her land. Unwelcome visitors. Uninvited guests. In Judges chapter 6, a group called the Midianites, they would come into Israel land and squat in her dens and her caves and her mountains. And it wasn't just some kind of random squatting either. They chose their places carefully. As new crops would begin to mature in certain places of this promised land, these Midianites would come in and steal them and destroy them. And to boot, they would take along any sheep or oxen or donkeys they discovered as part of their plunder. This is like someone coming in and living on your property, using your shed as a bunkhouse. And just as your garden is beginning to blossom and grow and produce vegetables, they're going to come and take all those vegetables, and then they're going to take your dog as well. To make matters worse, they come back multiple times over the course of seven years. How infuriating would that be? And frustrating. God will deal with this, by the way, through a man named Gideon. You can read it back in Judges chapter 6 and 7. But the point here is that the promised land, this inheritance, it had its problems. It's worth noting that nations like Assyria and Babylon are also going to come into the land and wreak even worse havoc. These greedy nations led by wicked rulers are all too eager to come in and take over land and plunder land. 
If you think about the location on a map, Israel's location is awesome for evangelism. It's a great place to be a light to the world, but it's a terrible place for defense. They had to rely on God for that, and you can judge how well they did. The promised land was her inheritance. But it turned out to be unstable, unclean, and unpredictable. Believer, you will never have that problem. Because the Bible says that your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. These three words in verse 4 describe your inheritance. And commentators have written on these words that the value is so great, your inheritance, that Peter cannot adequately find positive words to describe it. So he's going to tell us in this passage what it's not. He negates a positive word for each term. And what I mean by that is in English, you and I would say someone who believes that there is a God would be a theist. Uh, Someone who is not believing there's a God, we put an A in front of that to negate it, is an atheist. And we do that with a number of terms in our language. Well, that's what's happening with these three words that Peter writes. He's trying to express the great value, the infinite worth of your inheritance, by trying to tell us what it's not, as though he's searching for a word and can't find it. Your inheritance is imperishable, Peter says. It cannot decay. Go home this morning or this afternoon and move some containers around in your fridge. You have perishables. That is not your inheritance in the Lord. We just discussed Israel and her relationship to her land. She wished her land didn't perish, but it did. It was stolen and it was abused. But God has given you and I an imperishable inheritance. Secondly, your inheritance is undefiled. It is unstained by sin. Just think about that for a moment. Try to imagine a world without sin. Sin infects every molecule of our lives, even down to the cells in our bodies. There's the effects of sin that are are illustrated by disease and by illness. But there's going to be no more sin or the effects of sin. The inheritance is undefiled. There's to be no more accidents or injuries or pain. There's no more negative thoughts or rash judgments or poor decisions. It's almost impossible to imagine a world without sin. Yet your inheritance to be received one day is undefiled. And thirdly, Peter says, your inheritance will not fade away. It'll never lose its luster. Peter's going to use this word later in chapter 5, verse 4. There he'll describe the elder's reward. When the chief shepherd appears, when Jesus appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here the picture is is a crown which shimmers, that it it, uh, reflects light. It's shimmering gold while it never dulls. It's always shining, never losing its luster. It doesn't lose brilliance over time. That's your inheritance. And fourthly, Peter says here, by the way, at the end, it's reserved in heaven for you. 
he says this in a very particular way. He states it in a way that, that points to God, that God is the one who's reserving the inheritance. You're receiving it. God's reserving it. You are a wealthy heir. Well, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, illustrate this truth well. He tells us, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal. The point here is that any inheritance gained in this life, any stuff, any things, it's susceptible to break down. It could be by bugs, as he says, or by nature or other people. And this is relevant for the believer because we need to understand that in this life, you and I are going to lose in the end, it's victory. It'll be perfect and it'll be final, it'll be complete, but in this life, there will be times of loss. In fact, we would say that oftentimes when, when we suffer, loss comes with suffering. Loss comes with suffering in, in many different ways. It could be the loss of dignity or in the workplace, a loss of promotion. It could be the loss of an invitation to something. There are Christians who have lost friends and family members and even, even spouses, things that are supposed to last forever. Well, they don't always last forever. Peter would want us to remember your identity in Jesus. That though you lose things in this life, you are a wealthy heir. And what you receive spiritually is of much more value. It is more enduring. You heard the words he used. It lasts forever. And Peter would say, don't forget that as you suffer loss in this life. You are a wealthy heir, miraculously reborn. And thirdly, you are divinely protected. Verse 5, you are div divinely protected. He says, you are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We just heard a moment ago that it's, it's God who reserves our inheritance. And now we learn that it's God who, who protects us. That's a neat word. It's a, a military term. The word protect, it has to do with an army garrison defending or, or keeping a lookout. Paul used the word elsewhere to describe an opponent. He writes of an experience he had in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. You can imagine troops keeping watch, looking out for him. That's the idea, but it's God protecting you. And you see how this is done. Peter writes, it's through faith. And this balances out a bit that tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. This saying that God is sovereign means that God is in complete control, that he has power and exercises authority. Last week in verse 2, we learned that God chose you according to his foreknowledge. In verse 3 today, we saw God caused you to be born again, but we see now that we must have faith. In verse 5, we're protected by the power of God through faith. And we should note that this is a, an enduring faith. It's a continual faith. It's the kind of faith that says, I believe, not I believed. It's ongoing. It's, it's continual. But I think about my own faith, 
And I have to say that even here, I just can't lop this off and throw it in a compartment. I can't just declare it is by my faith that God will save me. Because who among us has not had some kind of a lapse or a slip? Who among us has not wrestled with, with unbelief, if even for a moment? Is the salvation to be revealed in the last day dependent upon my faith? Interview my two-year-old. I struggle to change a diaper. Not by my faith. But you get the tension, don't you? It's through faith I'm called to believe, and and I do, but at the same time, on that final day, I'm going to point to Christ and not to myself. I believed, he redeemed, somehow it all goes together. But what do we protect it from is Peter continues. We're protected from something. Is it, is it suffering? Well, no, we can rule that out. Later in chapter 2, verse 21, Peter writes that Christ suffered for you, leaving an example to follow. The assumption there is that we're going to suffer as Jesus did. Are we protected from persecution? Again, no. In chapter 4, verse 12, Peter writes, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. That's speaking about persecution. The assumption being we'll be persecuted. Maybe it's pain or heartache or, or grief. Maybe we're protected from those things. But again, faith in Jesus doesn't cancel trouble out of this life. I believe what Peter's writing here is that God protects you and I from whatever might, might try to steal or, or divert us off that path to the kingdom. Whatever might keep us from final salvation, God protects us from that. God's power protects through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This concept of salvation, it's huge in the Bible. It's an identity changer. And you may have sensed it, or there's this thread that's woven through our verses today. This word salvation is spoken of just in different ways. It's so big of a theme. In verse 3, Peter writes of it, calling it born again. And verse 3, again, it's a living hope. And verse 4, it's an inheritance. In verse 5, we learn that it's ready for us. God has it ready right now. There's, there's no wavering, no delay, no procrastination. But you also recognize in that verse that it's to be revealed. The apostles speak of salvation throughout the New Testament, and they do it in three different tenses of time. There's past, there's present, there's future. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes about salvation in the past. He saved us, past tense, Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. There's a present salvation, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And perhaps the the greatest use of a tense for salvation is future Romans chapter 5, verse 9, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. That's the tense of our passage. To say it another way, you were saved, you were being saved, you will be saved. That's how big of a theme this is. 
and how active God is in your life along with the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself. So for the Christian this morning in exile, for those who wondered, will I have strength to get through this life? Peter answers that, yes. Yes, because the one who has caused you to be born again is going to protect you. And he's going to do so for an inheritance reserved for you. So as a Christian, you will journey through this life. And as you do, I want you to know that your salvation is secure. If, however, you find yourself in Radcliffe, Kentucky, be careful where you journey. Because at the intersection of Gold Vault Road and Bullion Boulevard sits a plain two-story concrete building. We would say it's more of a vault than a building. It's called the U.S. Bullion Depository, situated next to a place that you and I know as Fort Knox. Now, this place is not open to visitors. I wouldn't try to journey into it. Layers of fence ring the premises. Some say that portions are electrified. It's rumored that parts of the land are also mined. There's electronic systems, including lasers and cameras, are always going to be cutting edge electronically. And four guard towers dot the corners of the facility. There's an undisclosed number of guards in those guard towers, the U.S. Mint Police, highly trained, effective fighters, and it doesn't hurt either that the U.S. Army base, Fort Knox, is next door. There's a 100-hour time clock fitting the 20-volt door, the 20-ton vault door, and that means that even if the correct combination is put in, it can only be unlocked at preset times. It said that no one person knows the code for the vault, and even if someone gets in, the vault may be instantly flooded. So why the big deal? What's all the fuss Is this a good use of tax dollars? Well, the United States Treasury Department seeks to protect $290 billion worth of gold. And if they put that much effort into an element of the earth, how much more is your God going to put in to protecting your salvation? He's given you a new identity. And he's given you a new life. And as you journey through this life, and as you puzzle at the places you find yourself in it, never forget who God has made you in Christ. You are a new birth and a new creation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for our new identity in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would captivate our hearts with these truths as Peter was overfilled with joy. I pray for people here this morning that may not yet know Jesus Christ, that they would be born again today, that you would open up hearts to believe and that you would redeem and you would save. I pray for the rest of us, Father, that these truths would not be lost on us, that you would, through your spirit, work them deep into our hearts. And we would rejoice at our new identity. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.